Amen. I invite you to come with me to Romans chapter 8. A couple of weeks ago, one of the verses in the sermon was Romans 11.22, where the Apostle Paul reminds us, advises us to consider the kindness and the severity of God. And so it was a message about divine judgment, which isn't only about severity, the sternness of God, because the God's judgment will mean relief and final salvation for the righteous, but there was a focus on the sternness of God. Today, in this message from Romans 8, there's a focus on God's amazing, wondrous, saving kindness to us, us sinners, through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. What if you could know someone who could give you everything you'd ever need to make you perfectly and eternally happy? We do know someone exactly like that. And that's exactly what salvation is ultimately all about to the glory of God. So I want to help you and help me believe or believe more deeply that this is really true. And so we come to Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 to 32, but we need to begin by being reminded of the blessings, the realities of salvation that have been described by Paul. Once in chapters 1 to 3, he established that we were under the divine wrath and deserving of punishment, but by the time we get especially to chapters 5 through 8, he shows us, and it began in chapter 3, but he shows us all that he has done in Christ Jesus. So that instead of wrath, we will get his undeserved kindness. And we will end up, believers will, in everlasting joy and happiness. Romans 8:28, we know already that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then he gives kind of the quick summary of salvation. For those God foreknew in eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, he called them through the gracious call and invitation of the gospel. And those he called, he also justified. He's made us totally righteous in his eyes because of the atoning work of Christ. And those he justified, and Paul puts it in the past tense because because God's doing it, it's so certain to be accomplished. Those he justified, he also glorified. He's going to bring them to full glory, a share in the glory of God. We'll be all that we were supposed to be. It's in response to that 
that Paul asks a question in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? When he asks, what shall we say, he's, it's another way of saying, what should we think about all of this? What's the so what to those amazing realities that he just summarized? There's an essential gospel logic throughout these verses. God's word tells us, teaches us how things are centered in the gospel. And then that same word calls on us to think through and to sort out and to apply and then to identify the ways of thinking, valuing, living, acting that are consistent with those salvation realities. I think of Paul's occasional, do you not know? He's writing and he wants to convince them of something, something that, where they need to profoundly change. But for that to happen, they've got to think differently. So he reminds them of realities that he knows they kind of know, but they're not living in light of them. So he says, don't you know? Don't you realize? Don't you remember? Or sometimes he'll say, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. We don't want you to be Christians trying to live the Christian life, but not knowing, not believing deeply the things that the gospel actually reveal. Packer, J.I. Packer, by the way, I commended his book, Knowing God, the last time I'll do it again. He's got great chapters on the love of God, the grace of God, an entire section ending the book on the theme, If God is for us. I recommend it again. He said, think of what you know of God through the gospel and apply it. Think against your feelings. Remember the psalmist? Why so downcast, oh my soul? The psalmist needs to talk to himself, needs to talk to his soul. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your trust in God. And so we often need to think against our feelings, argue ourselves out of the gloom they have spread, unmask the unbelief they've nourished. Take yourself in hand, talk to yourself. Make yourself look up from your problems to the God of the gospel. Let evangelical thinking, that is thinking centered in the gospel, correct emotional thinking about these things, the realities of Romans 8, 28 to 30, the realities celebrated in chapters 5 to 8. Paul is asking us to think about what the right response to these realities are and to two other key realities in verses 31 and 32, that God is for us and that he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There's the gospel logic again. He's done the greater thing. He didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us. 
if he's willing and was willing and did do that, it's inevitable. There's no way he's going to pull back now and fail to finish the work of bringing us to full salvation and happiness. He's going to graciously give us all things. If God is for us, who is against us? Now, don't miss it. He's not saying here that we don't have things that are against us. He'll say later in the chapter, and he'll give a whole list of things that we worry might separate us from the love of God. And as a pastor, as I look around the room, there are all kinds of things against us. There are illnesses, there are injustices, there are abusive relationships, there are hardships and trials of all kinds. There are things against us. What Paul is saying is, yes, but if God's for you, now make the compare, now think it through in light of all the things that we worry might separate us from the love of God. But the message of the gospel, among other things, is for the believer, because by this point in Romans, he's talking about believers in Jesus Christ. God is for you. God is always, in everything, only for you. That's the message of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6 summarizes the covenant relationship, the, the promise-based relationship we have with God now. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God. All that a God's supposed to do, God will do, and they will be my people. I will be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The covenant promise, the promise to be our God, is a comprehensive promise which, when unpacked, proves to contain within itself all the exceeding great and precious promises in which God has pledged himself to meet our needs. This covenant relationship is the basic of all, basis of all the biblical religion. When worshipers say, my God, and God says, my people, covenant language is being spoken. And so he, this covenant-keeping God who is the father of all believers, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is a gospel reality that Paul really, really wants us to reckon with. How will, how will, he, not, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things that's a gospel application that Paul wants us to think about, to ask, and to answer. He did not spare his own son. It's an echo, of course, of what happened in Genesis with Isaac and Abraham. When Abraham, inexplicably to him, was supposed to take his son, his one and only son, his only begotten son, and offer him in sacrifice. That's behind the language here. And Paul says, but at this time, God didn't spare his one and only son. 
God the Father didn't spare his one and only son from emptying himself by taking the very nature of a servant, a slave, when he became man in this fallen world. God the Father did not spare his son from becoming obedient to death. He did not spare him from his death being a cruel death on the cross, even though in Gethsemane, the son had prayed intensely that he might be spared if there could be any other way. God the Father did not spare his son the agony of being forsaken, wringing out of him the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why? And then as commentator John Murray poignantly explains, on that cross, God did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke. For it pleased the Lord to crush him, Isaiah's prophecy says. He hath put him to grief. There was no mitigation. Judgment for the sins of the world was dispensed upon the Son in its unrelieved intensity. Another commentator adds, Isaac was rescued by divine information, but for Jesus, there was no such intervention. No other lamb could take the place of the Lamb of God. And the delivering up meant causing him to drink to the very dregs the cup of wrath. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, we know for sure from dozens of Old Testament passages that it was the cup of divine wrath. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ. It's the Savior King we were waiting for. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, you who hear his groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God.
God the Father did not spare his only begotten son. Instead, he, not ultimately Herod, not ultimately Pilate, not ultimately the Jewish leaders, he delivered him up, delivered him over for us all. We all like sheep had gone astray, each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53.10 goes on to say, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The most famous verse of the Bible says it. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. Why? Why did he do this? Why wouldn't the father who had twice from heaven declared that Jesus was his much beloved and well-pleasing son, why wouldn't he spare him? Spare him all those agonies that began in Gethsemane and came to the climax in Golgotha. Isaiah 53 also answers that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us on that cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then in the scripture reading that was read, the answer to why is given again. For you see at the right time, when we were still powerless, there was no way we could get under the divine wrath. We're such slaves to sin and self to Satan, there was no way that we could ever make an atonement or ever even really want to. We were without strength. But in that situation, at just the right time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's demonstrating his own love. There are other kinds of love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still rebels, sinners, Christ died for us. The message of Christianity is the word of the cross. Since we have now been justified by his blood, the blood atones and absorbs the wrath Now we're right with God again. We've been justified by his blood. That's how salvation works. How much more, another from the logic arguments, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? But I want you to hear this. This is why the father did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for us all. If he had spared him, he would have had to condemn and punish you and me. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry 
his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation. Please remember too, it's a massive mistake to think or to say as some so-called Bible scholars say that God did all the giving, gave the son, but the son was merely doing what the father had compelled him to do, what the father had inflicted upon him. Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that the son was totally willing to be sacrificed, motivated by the same divine love. The Lord Jesus himself said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Or you think of Paul's poignant testimony in Galatians 2. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, his the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. So Paul says, the same God who did not even spare his own son how will he not, having done the harder thing, do what is mysterious language to speak of in a way, but do the easier thing? That is, now, graciously give us all things. What all things? All things that we really need for salvation. All things that we've ever only really needed for full and true happiness. Not on our own terms, not on our own timetables. We're terrible judges of a lot of that. But all that you ever need to really be truly, eternally happy is on the way to you. Of course we don't have it all now in this world, in this godless age. The kingdom's not fully yet. We pray every day thy kingdom come. But it is inexorably headed your way if you have put your trust in such a savior. The thought expressed by Paul's question is, no good thing will be finally withheld from us. The Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks said, it is as if he said, you shall have a true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my own glory. My grace, says God, shall be yours to pardon you. My power, says God, shall be yours to protect you. 
My wisdom shall be yours to direct you. And my goodness shall be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. That's what Paul means by all things. He's not going to withhold anything now. It's a comprehensive promise for God to be our God. It includes everything. God is mine and everything is mine, said Luther. Another Puritan said, this is true love to anyone. To do the best for him, you can. Well, that's what God does for those whom he loves. The best he can. And the measure of the best that God can do is omnipotence. Thus, faith in Christ introduces us into a relation big with incalculable, incalculable blessing, both now and for eternity. So I want to kind of summarize. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have repenting of your old way, turning from it, and putting your faith in God and Christ instead. Paul says that that means that ultimately, God has guaranteed to graciously give to you everything that you need to be truly and perfectly happy. The blessings begin in this life, and they're deep, and rich, forgiveness of sin and guilt, how great is that? God as your father and guide, Christ as your friend and your everyday intercessor, the Holy Spirit as your helper and your advocate, the Bible as your infallible map, as you progress as a pilgrim to eternity. But good as these things are, they're not all. But they will finally be consummated in the life to come. You know, as I thought about this, and I just really always want to get better and better at saying, so what? Here's a so what. Here's an application. If what I'm saying is true, and it is true, among other things, Think about it. There is no reason for you to ever envy the lives and circumstances of others and be jealous of what they have because if you entrust yourself to God, you will end up, end up with everything that you need for your true and perfect happiness. You don't have it yet, but you're going to receive it. That's what I'm saying this promise is. Why envy the things other, you're going to end up with all things. So am I. Most importantly, as C.S. Lewis said, if you think about it, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself. Paul says God will give along with him, graciously give us all things. God can't give us a happiness and peace apart from him because it isn't there, there's no such thing. You've been created, wired, and designed to engage with God. There is never any other way to find true happiness until that happens. 
but it can happen. The gospel pleads with you to let it happen. One preacher used to be the chaplain of the Senate. The name of his ministry kind of was odd to me at first, but it was, let God love you. He's offering. He's inviting. Now's the time of grace. Now's the time of forgiveness. Sinner, why will you die? Why in the world would you refuse all things for your eternal happiness? And it does raise the question, how shall we escape if we say no to this? How perverse, how weird and wicked to say no to perfect happiness and to continue to be those who participate in the vandalizing of God's good by our continuing sin. And would God be good to let that go on forever so that the wicked and the unbelieving and the abusing and the mistreating get to hold the universe hostage forever? No. And God's not going to let that happen. He's going to break in enough. And he's going to bring those who are willing to receive it perfect happiness. And those to refuse to have it won't have it. The Bible labors the point that God, just as God is amazingly good, and that's what I'm talking about this morning, amazingly good to those who trust him. So he is terrible to those who do not. Another reason that believing these things deeply matters so much, whether or not we really believe that God is for us in this way and to this degree is that if we don't, we will not day by day really trust him. We won't really trust him to do us good. What's the point of going to him? What's the point of leaning on him? What's the point of praying and asking? But if we get convinced by the cross, he's for me, he loves me, then things change. So the main application and idea is this. Summarizing what I've tried to say, and it's an either or. If I entrust myself to God, putting my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior because of what he did on the cross, and then following him as Lord, turning from my old way of thinking and living, if I do that, which is to say, if I repent and believe by God's amazing grace, I will end up not too many years from now, days, who knows. I will end up endlessly and irreversibly and perfectly happy, utterly undeserved. But if I don't, if I continue in my unbelief, which shows up sometimes as defiance and sometimes as indifference towards God, if I continue vandalizing the good that's even in my life because of his common grace, I will end up completely and irreversibly miserable this time, 
deservedly so. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. Just believing. He that rejects the Son won't see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And it'll be all on us which choice we've made. Make no mistake. Unbeliever, repent and believe this good news that Christ is a Savior who will trust and fully happify, who will save and fully happify all who trust in him. And Christian believer, be glad. The cross is the guarantee amplified by the empty tomb that one day, not in this world, but in the world to come, and it's not that far away, you will be fully and finally and irreversibly happy. If this can't make us sing for joy, I don't think anything will. I hope you feel deep in your heart because you've been helped to see it today, helped by the Holy Spirit clearly in your mind, how glorious all this really is. And just in case you have some lingering doubt, thinking that something might get in the way of all of this to prevent you from that final perfect happiness, cutting you off from God and his love after all, Paul gathers up all the objections and anxieties that cloud our judgment and dim our expectation with one last barrage of gospel-based questions and answers. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who's gonna get in the way of all of this? Shall trouble, and we'll have them, or hardship, and we'll have them, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Why does Paul write that way? Because that's about what his life is like. He's an apostle, and that's what his life is like. These strange notions, this semi, halfway, health and wealth gospel we live with does us a lot of harm. Paul expects that life in this fallen world will often be like this. For your sake, we face death all day long and we're considered sheep to be slaughtered. There's a lot of things against us. But no, Paul says, they won't break the bond between Christ's saving love and you. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why more than conquerors and not just conquerors? Because not only do they not defeat us, God even turns them to our good. For I am convinced, Paul is a rational, tough-minded man, but he has come to see through the word and the promise of the gospel of God, lived out in his life, and anchored in the cross and the empty tomb, I am convinced, and here comes the list, neither death, that's not going to be able to do it, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, and then I love it, because if your mind's like my mind, I'd still like, oh, he didn't put this in the list, he didn't put this in the list, and we'd worry about it. So he says, nor anything else in all creation, <laughs> there will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And God's amazed by grace, people say, amen. Father, what shall we say? What shall we think? And how shall we live in response to these things? Amen. Amen.